Electricity is very much on everybody's mind. The catastrophe in Texas, uh, changing ways we make electricity, huge pressure on utilities to change their generation mix, to get off carbon producing natural gas and worse, coal. So to take a look at electricity, both here and around the world, I have an extraordinary man. He is Lawrence Jones, Vice President of International Programs at the Edison Electric Institute in Washington, and himself an internationalist, born in Liberia, educated in Sweden, making his home in the US. Lawrence, welcome to the broadcast. Thank would you. you like to, would you Thanks. like to explain this fabulous international background? Yeah, well, thanks for having me, Llewellyn. Once again, it's a pleasure to be here. Mm -hmm. And uh, as you said, uh, I was, yes, born in Liberia, grew up in Liberia, studied in Sweden, now live in the United States. And I'm fortunate to have a job at the Edison Electric Institute that allows me to work around the world and work with electric companies uh, in about uh, 90 different countries. So it's really an honor to uh, have such an opportunity to uh, work with the folks who are trying to make a difference, keeping the lights on. And you yourself are an electrical engineer? Yes, I am. I am. And uh, what's the state of electricity, putting aside the catastrophe that occurred in Texas, but worldwide, uh, is electricity growth uh, continuing? Are more countries getting more electricity? What about Africa, South America, and other Asia and parts of the world that have been undersupplied heretofore? Very interesting question. I think electrification by and large is really taking up. Uh, we are seeing more and more countries moving towards greater electrification. There are countries that are still lagging. Obviously, many countries in sub-Saharan Africa are struggling, uh, mainly with the infrastructure and some of the regulatory policies that are necessary to attract investments. I think one of the things we've learned from COVID-19 is that electricity is so central to life. Uh, we, we were fortunate as an international industry that we had very few blackouts uh, during COVID-19 uh, at the peak of the pandemic, if you may. Uh, and so it's, it's safe to say that electricity is going to be an important component of the energy transition. I think the future is going to be electric. Obviously, I'm biased in having that opinion. But I think all of the indications from more, more organizations are indicating that transportation is getting more electrified. Other sectors of the economy is get, are getting electrified. So I think we're going to see electrification and electricity playing a very important role. The challenge we have is how do you reduce the number of individuals who lack access to electricity? And that brings up the key issue of affordability, reliability, and of course, the sustainability. Um, are we going to be able to leapfrog what we've seen in America and Europe and Japan in electric development? In Africa, for example, which I'm keenly interested in myself, in Africa, uh, say with telephones, there's been a technological leapfrog. You don't need copper wire, you can have a cell phone. Uh, is there any equivalent, any parallel in electricity where some of the old, heavy, solid, expensive infrastructure can be bypassed? I honestly, I think you're going to need a little bit of both. In, in fact, I've always said you're going to need a hybrid solution when it comes to not just Africa, but most of the world in, 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 in all earnest. I think the challenge we have is that electricity, uh, from an urbanization perspective, it's going to still require bulk transmission systems because of just how the population 
centers are located in many parts of the world. You have urban cities like Mumbai, Lagos in Africa, you have Johannesburg, uh, you have uh, Mombasa. These are major cities where uh, distributed energy resources, leapfrogging to just off-grid solutions is not gonna work. Now, obviously in many of the rural communities around the world, there is a significant impact that you can have by having distributed energy resources. So I think you will have a hybrid world where you have in some places, significant amounts of centralized power plants to bring centralized large power uh, to the urban communities, but you will still have rural communities and even semi-rural communities that will require distributed energy resources. So when I think- we say, When we say distributed energy resources, can you define that for us, please? Yeah, yeah, so basically these are off-grid solutions. It would be anything from, uh, say you could have energy storage devices like community energy storage device that would serve a, a community that could be partly connected to the grid, partly disconnected. You could have rooftop solar in certain rural communities serving clinics, serving high schools or educational centers. But I think when it comes to industrialization where you need massive amounts of energy, you will still need to have some centralized power plants. So, so the decentralized would be folks not connected to the grid or partially connected to the grid with the option to disconnect depending on how the situation evolves. For example, like you have in Australia where you have significant uptake in rooftop uh, solar, but you still need centralized power. What about, what about global warming, climate change? Uh, it's putting tremendous pressure on utilities in this country uh, to change very radically to go to non-carbon solutions. Is this a global phenomenon? It is a global phenomenon, but I think every, every country is at a different pace, but I think there's a global recognition that there has to be something done in this, in this, uh, in this arena. Fortunately, in the US, for example, the electric companies have made significant progress in reducing greenhouse gas emissions. In fact, they've done it perhaps better than many other countries, even though it's not a story that is often told. Now, in many other countries, uh, since China, for example, uh, they are making a significant push in using renewable energy, but they still have significant amounts of coal and other fossil fuels. So I think there is a recognition around the world that we have to transition to cleaner energy systems. The challenge is everyone is going to go at a different pace depending on their uh, local conditions and the resources they have at hand. You mentioned a few moments ago in passing storage, but isn't storage really the huge challenge? Isn't that the big next technological hurdle? Yes, and I think it's going to be addressed two ways. There's one aspect, it's a long durational storage, and then there is a sort of a short-term storage. So I think a lot of the discussions today you hear about energy storage is around having battery storage for, I would say, end-use uh, uh, purposes, right? So you can have a battery in your home that allows you to have backup generation. You can always bring that storage up. But I think for massive amounts of energy, you will have to look at bulk storage. And, and there you're gonna have research being done already to sort of a make the efficiency of long-term storage be viable. I think we're gonna also revisit what we mean by energy systems. You know, I think it's gonna be a combination of using different kinds of supplies to be able to get storage done. So for example, if you take uh, Scandinavia, where they have a lot of hydro in uh, Norway and say parts of Sweden, they can act as a storage for parts of Europe that would like to use a significant amount of wind energy. So I think what needs to happen is we need to take a holistic look at the resources we have. Some will require long durational storage, others will require short-term storage, but I think storage is gonna be a major breakthrough. Let me list some technologies for you and get your opinion of them. 
batteries we've dealt with, batteries tend to have a drawdown at the moment of about four hours, maybe eight hours, after which they're flat, which is not going to help in a situation like Texas, or even most summers in Texas, where there can be a wind drought of nine days. Uh, you need to store a lot of energy to get through nine days. Uh, the storage systems we have, the old tried and true one was called pump storage, where you pump water up a mountain or some high thing, and you let it fall down through a turbine, and you have effectively actually fairly efficiently uh, stored electricity, but they're not that many mountains convenient, and environmentalists are not very keen on your chopping the top off them to, to make a, a dam up there. Uh, what about hydrogen? That seems to be the flavor of the month in discussions I'm party to. Yeah, so hydrogen, interestingly enough, uh, I see it almost like one we have viewed renewables in the past, where there is a lot of discussion about hydrogen. We have a lot of projects going on around the world. In, in, in Australia, you have it in Japan. Uh, Europe is looking at it, the UK. Uh, now it's been discussed in the United States. I think hydrogen has a role to play. Uh, I'm not convinced that hydrogen for transportation is perhaps the most optimal solution. I think hydrogen being used in other industrial sectors might make sense. I think hydrogen for, for uh, electrification uh, is something that could be considered, but I think more, more interestingly would be hydrogen for other forms of, uh, of uh, industries. In transportation, I think the best option there is still electricity. In the 1970s and 80s, the hydrogen lobby, and there was a hydrogen lobby, uh, probably mistakenly thought that its future was in transportation. Uh, in reality, it doesn't seem as though we're going to set in, set up dual fueling for hydrogen and for electricity. It's a substantial industrial undertaking to put in enough charge points for electric vehicles. So we're looking at using hydrogen as a fuel in electricity and in industrial processes. But hydrogen is not natural gas. It has limits and assets. It, it, it sure does. I think one of the things I would, I would caution against, uh, Llewellyn, is that I, I, would, I would not place any bets against any technology today because there's so much happening. There's so much breakthrough that's coming that you, don't, you just don't know where that breakthrough will come that will bring the cost curve down as we've seen in the case of hydro, I mean, in the case of, of solar and wind. Um, I think, uh, you know, carbon capture and sequestration is another area where uh, you've seen a, a lot of uh, a noise being made and you see a lot of progress being made, right? And so you have a lot of initiatives now focusing on capturing carbon, doing something with it. Uh, let's see where that goes. I mean, we, we don't have time in our hands as a global community, we need to accelerate uh, investment in, in, in low, low carbon technologies. And that's something I think more and more countries are looking at. The challenge is, uh, are we gonna make the investments necessary to accelerate the transition to these low carbon technologies as soon as possible? And that's where I think the challenge lies. Uh, what about nuclear? Nuclear seems to get the back burner in the US and the front burner in, in China and uh, India and uh, other places. Arab world, for example, is turning to nuclear despite their enormous reserves of oil and natural gas. Uh, what's the problem here with nuclear? It has very, very minor impact on the environment. 
Yeah, I think one of the issues with nuclear has been in the past, uh, you know, the issue of cost, right? A lot of people have raised the cost factor as, as, as it relates to nuclear. I think the, the, uh, the positive we're seeing today is that uh, small modular reactors uh, are gaining momentum. Uh, you have a lot of companies now have demonstration projects. OPG in Canada, for example, uh, is, is pushing aggressively on that. Uh, you have uh, other organizations that are looking at small modular reactor for, for dealing with this. I think in terms of the large reactors, uh, we've seen some progress. You mentioned the UAE. Uh, obviously, you have China, you have uh, you have Korea and other places that are looking at nuclear. Interestingly enough, one of the world's most, uh, uh, I would call it try and true user of nuclear, uh, Japan, the prime minister just said that nuclear has to be part of the equation for them to meet their uh, sustainable the Paris Agreement. So I think nuclear is gonna have a, a, a role to play. I think there has to be more done to convince the public uh, that the safety measures have been put in place and nuclear is safe. Uh, we have the case in Canada, for example, in Toronto, uh, where they have uh, nuclear as an important part of their uh, their strategy. And so I think, you know, over time, nuclear will demonstrate its uh, long-term value. And I think even there you will see, uh, my hope is that the, the cost curve for nuclear will become even more competitive uh, in other parts of the world. If we take into consideration the contribution nuclear makes to reducing uh, global uh, emissions, because that's what it does. Well, it has no emissions of that kind, very few emissions of any kind, and, and no carbon emissions. Uh, the rush to nuclear was at most apparent and most effective probably in France, uh, and France really has m many fewer emissions per capita than any other country, and yet the French seem a bit hesitant about it now. Yeah, I think, you know, there is there is... There, there, there's always movement for and against different energy sources after different incidences occur in different parts of the world. I think over time, uh, what I'm seeing, what I'm hearing when I talk to technology providers and others, is that they're making significant progress in in addressing some of the concerns that people have had as it relates to nuclear. But I think the balance we have to do here in, in terms of diversity, Llewellyn, is if we're going to meet the Paris uh, uh, requirements and all the different net zero goals being set by governments. We have to be sincere and honest about the conversation. And we can't say no nuclear on the one hand. And on the other hand, you want to aggressively get to your uh, net zero targets. There's another aspect here, which I think is extremely important to keep in mind. And that is the issue of energy security in the context of renewable, because let's assume that you do go with significant penetration of renewable in your system. The fundamental question to ask is where are you getting the, the renewables from? If you're not manufacturing the turbines, you're not manufacturing the wind, uh, the solar panels, well, where are you getting it from? So in essence, you end up creating some form of uh, new dependency that has its own set of challenges. So I think we need to keep that in mind when we think about the role of uh, different resources. The uh, catastrophe in Texas was largely through an over-dependence on renewables. Uh, nobody expected ice and snow. The turbines, the wind turbines froze, half of them froze, and Texas is very heavily dependent on wind energy. And of course, the solar panels were covered in ice and snow. Uh, doesn't this point up a vulnerability that has been introduced into utility systems that wasn't there previously? Well, I, you know, I haven't, I haven't seen, I think it's still, the, the jury is still out as to what's the real cause of the 
the situation in Texas. There are different views. Oh, I know the cause. It's the lousy weather. We know well, the cause. I know that's the cause, but I'm saying the impact of the lousy weather on different generation sources, right? I think what's, what, what Texas is telling us, and there was a similar sort of a storm that went through Japan a couple of months ago where you had similar polar vortex. I think reliability and resilience has to be front and, I mean, have to be front and center in the minds of everybody. How you achieve it, whether you have high penetration of renewables or not, you still have to focus on how do you make sure you have a resilient system. Do you think that we're overdoing it on solar and wind? So I think it depends on who, who, you, who you consider we, right? I mean, if you talk to the Danes, if you talk to folks in the UK, if you talk to you know, parts of Australia, you talk to people in, in the, say, in, you know, in, in other parts of Europe where they have high penetration of wind and solar, they may, they may have a different view, right? Uh, and I think this is where energy systems have to be put in a local context, right? Uh, it, it's, it's not the case that we've gone too far. I think the issue here is we need to step back and ask ourselves, have we designed the right regulatory and, and market mechanisms to make these systems work? If you talk to the Danes, I mean, they will tell you, I mean, they have high penetration of wind. There are days in, in, in Denmark and even in Ireland where they got significant amount of the resources from, uh, from wind. Now, if that happens for maybe say 200, 200 days in the year, you have most of your energy from wind. You need to plan for the days when you will have to uh, do away with, with little wind, right? So, so I think it's one of not having an either or situation but really taking a holistic view at your energy system and designing it based on the resources you have. Well, that brings us back to hydrogen, which we were talking about a while back. Uh, the Europeans with their high wind penetration, particularly in the North Sea, are hoping that they can use wind power to generate enough surplus electricity that through electrolysis, they can make enough hydrogen to be the reserve fuel for when the wind isn't blowing, and they're quite far along. It's certainly very much their intention. They've committed the money. It's in the, it's in all their resource planning. They're far further ahead than we are. Um, do you think they're going too fast? Do you think it's going to work? I would say it could work. The question is, how fast do you want it to go, right? And so, you know, I've looked at systems in Australia. I've looked at uh, systems in uh, projects in, in, in Japan and elsewhere where they're looking at hydrogen. I think the Europeans have an ambition because they have so much renewable coming from wind. You got to do something with it, right? And so one option is why don't you store it in, in hydrogen? And you, you know, you have the whole green and blue hydrogen concept. Maybe that will work there, right? Uh, but then if you come to the US, you may have a different, uh, you may have a different strategy. If you go to the UAE, you have a different strategy. So I, I think hydrogen has a role to play. The question is how significant that role is going to be in different parts of the world. I, I wouldn't be one who would ascribe to saying, let's let hydrogen be the sort of a, the new mother of all fuels that will save the world. I don't think that's uh, that's realistic. I think it has to be put in the context of, of the price, the cost of hydrogen, but also the infrastructure that's necessary to make hydrogen uh, a viable uh, player. So let's see what happens over the next five years. If you got me having your show in five years, I may have a different prediction for you. <laughs> CPS Energy, the utility in San Antonio, it's municipally owned, so it's not one of yours, but uh, it's part of the, the family of utilities. Uh, they have a request for proposals out to back up their very ambitious intention to deploy 
when they've got 400 megawatts of uh, solar deployed and they want to deploy another 900. And they're looking at some extraordinary technologies, whether any of them will be deployed, I do not know, but they're looking at compressed air, liquefied air, using old mine shafts for pump storage instead of using a mountain, uh, flywheels, which keep sort of popping back into the energy mix and then going away again. Uh, these are very interesting things. Do you hold out any hope for any storage system outside of batteries and hydrogen at this point in time? I mean, I think on a massive scale, uh, I would probably place my bets on battery, different forms of it, and maybe to some extent hydrogen, even pump storage may have a role to play here. I think some of the other uh, things being, you know, compressed air, I think there's a, there's a role for research and development. I think we should pay attention to those technologies. I don't think we should cast them aside. I think we should invest in R&D because our industry uh, is one where we cannot place all our our, our eggs in one basket. We really need to diversify with thinking about what technology is going to bring to us, right? And so there's a lot of work being done in different parts of the world. I would say, though, in terms of some of these very, I would I mean, take something like wave energy, right? I mean, you haven't mentioned wave, right? Now, now a couple of years ago, everyone said wave energy was a, was a joke. It's never going to happen. Well, there are a couple of projects today that are showing some promising signs of what wave energy could do in some there's parts. One, there's one in Ireland, one in Scotland. Yep. Uh, and one in the East River of New York City. And there's one on the West Coast of, uh, of the United States uh, in the Pacific Northwest. There's a project they've been working on for a while. But I'm just saying, I, I think from an innovation perspective, you know, have been a technologist myself, I never want to say, I never want to close the door to something that could just perhaps be the breakthrough. Now, at some point, you have to stop the investment because you've you know, you've made more investments, but if you've seen progress, maybe not as aggressive as you would like, you let those things continue to nurture. Maybe there will be a breakthrough. Maybe you, you, you'll see it in our lifetime or in the next lifetime, but we, you know, you, Llewellyn, 20 years ago, who would have thought the price of wind and solar would be where it is today, right? Nobody would. True. Right? So, True. so using the same mindset, let's see what happens, but we shouldn't just blindly throw money at all these different technologies. We need to be selective and we need to, to track their progression to know where they're going over time. Tell me about jobs in energy. Uh, one of the uh, things that is said about renewables is they create so many jobs, especially wind. Mm -hmm. uh, is that true? And are those sustained jobs or those jobs during the initial construction? In which case, the same thing could be said for nuclear power. Yeah, I think there, I mean, there, 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 there are two ways to answer that question. I think the first way is renewable energy does create job opportunities, right? We know that. The question is, are some of the jobs, long-term jobs that will be there on a sort of a perpetual basis or will be sort of a project-related jobs, right? I think in terms of project-related jobs, there are quite a few that will come there. In terms of manufacturing jobs, I think if, for example, the U.S., was to bolster its renewable energy industry in terms of manufacturing solar panels, wind turbines. It would create jobs. It would also create, um, you know, the supply chain will become very interesting because a lot of the gadgets that go into renewable, into a wind farm, a wind turbine, for example, it's not made by one single entity. So you could have a lot of uh, supply side or supply chain jobs being created. Uh, and then you also have an ecosystem. I, I think right now, what a lot of countries are lacking is an ecosystem for manufacturing different types of technology. 
Uh, and I think that's where I would recommend to governments looking at this. I spoke to someone in Australia over the past couple of days, and they're developing a, a low emissions technology investment roadmap because they realize that for Australia to achieve any form of green jobs coming back, uh, if you may, as they decide to move away from some of their fossil fuel industry in the mining sector, they will have to create new jobs and investing in manufacturing of clean technology is one way to create jobs. Now, the question here is, how do you skill up the workforce to be ready to take those jobs? Because that's the challenge, right? You have to have people prepared to work on these different technologies uh, and in these different industries compared to what they've done in the past. So I think it does create some opportunities for job. I will always question the, you know, the, the numbers sometimes might seem out of, you know, out of, uh, out of whack in terms of some may say, you know, 3 million jobs, 5 million jobs, some countries say as much as 10 million jobs. It all depends on how you calculate what jobs and what jobs you're talking about. This uh, is an automatic segue into minority employment in the electric utility industry here in the United States, where particularly African-Americans as a minority seem to be underrepresented underrepresented, I should have said. Yes. Uh, what are you doing about that? So I think significant progress is now being made. We still have ways to go, but I would say one of the things, say for example, within the Edison Electric Institute, uh, you know, our current chairman made a priority, uh, Ben Folk, who is the CEO of Excel, uh, Excel Energy, his priority, and that has become the priority of the industry, is to focus on diversifying the workforce, making sure that we focus on diversity, equity, and inclusion as part of this uh, process. And what has been very uh, interesting, uh, being a person of color my, us, myself, having lived in different parts of the world, it's interesting to note that the United States electricity sector, the investor-owned, as well as some of the other uh, groups, are actually now really trying to make the effort uh, to, to diversify the workforce. Is there room to grow? Absolutely. Are there things and challenges that need to be addressed? Yes. But I think by and large, there's a recognition that there is a huge opportunity out there to get minorities who in many cases have the skill set, but they haven't been brought to the table. And I think some of the diversity and inclusion initiatives you see around the industry in the US is something worth noting. One point I will make, uh, and it's not so much just for African-Americans, I think uh, in terms of uh, diversity by and large, you know, the US uh, power sector is uh, ahead of the pack when it comes to say, for example, number of women uh, who serve as CEOs, right? The US power sector is, is ahead. Uh, the same thing could be said, well, the, the number of, uh, of executives in utilities, right? Where I think more work is needed is at the technical level, say linesmen, uh, technicians, there, there's an opportunity to diversify that workforce even more than we've done already. Lawrence, it's a great pleasure to have you on the broadcast. You're a wise and interesting man. Uh, you make your home now in the U.S.? Yes, I do. I'm in the U.S. now, uh, and it's been here. Because of COVID, I have not traveled for 12, almost 12 months. And so uh, it's, been, it's been nice being on the ground, but I can guarantee you once I start traveling again, I will have more interesting ideas to share with you as I travel the world. Well, come back and share them with us. It's a great pleasure to have you. That's our show for today. Thank you so much for coming along. Our hearts go out to those who lost electricity in Texas, Oklahoma, 
and other southern states. Till next time, I hope your lights stay on and you're warm in this cold time. Cheers. White House Chronicle is available as a podcast on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you listen, we are there.